Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 12 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be talking to Corey Olson. He's uh, the host of the popular Tolkien Professor podcast. Uh, he's a professor at Washington College where he teaches courses on Chaucer, Courtly Love, Arthurian Literature, the Bible, Greco-Roman Mythology, and a full semester course on the works of Tolkien. Um, I just I'm, kind can... of, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that it's Greco-Roman Mythology and not Greco-Roman Wrestling. <laughs> uh, he kind of looks like uh, he could do some wrestling. Um, boy, I just totally lost my train of thought there. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just, I just came across this, uh, this podcast randomly and just started listening to it. And I, I really, really enjoy it. He's, uh, Corey is just really, really enthusiastic when he talks about Tolkien. And I always just, I'm always just really interested, you know, when people are, are really enthusiastic, uh, that always makes me interested in whatever they're talking about. And um, so right now he's actually he's teaching his Tolkien class and he's recording all of his lectures. So you can listen to his lectures and listen to the students asking questions. And I guess he's actually set up a a, a forum uh, on the website where you can actually go and sort of interact and ask questions along with the students and be involved in the discussion. I haven't actually checked that out myself, but it, it certainly sounds interesting. And so he actually has a lot of ideas about doing outreach between academia and the general public that I, I think are really, uh, really cool. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, in this interview. And then stick around uh, after the interview when John and I will be talking about all things Hobbit related, um, including chatting about Del Toro's upcoming adaptation of The Hobbit. All right, so let's get Corey on the phone. Hello. Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi. So thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, no problem. Um, so uh, how did you get interested in medieval literature and what appeals to you about it? You know, I actually ultimately blame my interest in medieval literature on Tolkien. Um, I, you know, I kind of grew up with Tolkien, and I was just really drawn to medieval literature pretty much as soon as I read it. Um, the first work of me medieval lit I ever read was Sir Thomas Mallory, um, and I just kind of happened across a, a a Middle English edition, goodness knows why my town library had a Middle English edition of Mallory, but they did. And I just happened to cross it one day and um, was just so astounded by, by the language of it. The, just the, 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 the strangeness of it and the kind of wonder of it was, uh, was just really striking. But I really think that part of what really uh, sort of solidified it, when I went on to study medieval literature, there was something always very familiar and comfortable with it. My students, what I always have a hard time with, or what all medieval lit professors have a hard time with, is trying to, to get modern students to kind of get past their own reservations and, and just the, the, the alien quality of medieval literature. Medieval people just thought so much differently than we do, and the world is so different uh, to them, and it just feels weird. I mean, very few people would pick up any work of medieval literature just to read for pleasure because it's always a lot of work to kind of get into it and to think about it, it, it because they just they thought so differently and wrote so differently um, from what we expect and the kind of stories that we like to hear. Um, but I didn't have that hard a time with it when I picked it up. And I, I think largely that was because of Tolkien. Tolkien's world 
is very medieval in its perspective. And uh, being very familiar with Tolkien's world, there was a lot of stuff in medieval literature that just felt, rather than feeling alien, really felt familiar. I, Tolkien's works are still modern works. Uh, I mean, you, you, there are many aspects of them that are very much more like modern novels than like medieval texts. But uh, but at the same time, there's so much in just the general ethos of, of his writings, um, which is very very much true to the medieval spirit and um, really made it seem really kind of homey and comfortable <laughs> for me when I, when I first started reading it. So uh, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the medieval world? Well, one problem, the biggest problem that I would point to is what uh, both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis in conversation with each other called chronological snobbery. Uh, that is the tendency that we have as modern people to assume that people who lived and wrote a long time ago must be stupider and less sophisticated than we. Um, mm. And this is a very natural kind of conclusion. People don't usually actually work it out logically, but if we believe, as modern people tend to believe, in a kind of uh, sort of pseudo-Darwinian idea of progress and evolution, that people are getting smarter, faster, stronger all the time. Um, th therefore, the logical, though implicit often, extension of that is that people who lived a long time ago were slower, weaker, dumber, smaller than we. Um, and so when you read really old texts, and especially when they sound kind of strange to you, and clearly their values are different, and I don't just mean their ethical values, but their, their, their narrative values. I mean, what makes a good story to a medieval person is clearly very different from what makes a good story to us. I think they would be very puzzled by most modern novels. Um, puzzled in the sense of, like, why would anyone want to read something like this, I think. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, uh, so people tend to, when they look back on, on, on old authors, to basically make assumptions whether they realize it or not make assumptions that they that they either were or sort of must have been pretty stupid and some of this has been actively um furthered by some serious misconceptions that were encouraged actually especially in the 19th century for instance the idea that in the middle ages they believed the, the earth was flat Nobody ever believed the earth was flat. They knew the, the earth was round. Um, the, you know, the whole, all the heavens were a series of concentric spheres. They knew that from ancient Greece onwards. Um, there's never been a time in Western Europe when it was a predominant idea that the world was flat. Um, but, you know, most modern people all assume, you know, so they're all, oh, you know, the flat earth and the dark ages and everything. And so they sort of imagine people just kind of stumbling around and beating each other with clubs. <laughs> Uh, and that's really frustrating. I mean, it's because the fact is when you read the work of a medieval author, you are almost always confronting somebody who is very much smarter and more sophisticated than you. And sometimes you can recognize that. I mean, it's if you read Chaucer, for instance, with any sensitivity, you can you can pretty quickly pick up on the fact that this guy is just running circles around you and just toying with you. And, and, and I mean, but that's just kind of Chaucer. He loves playing games with his audience like that. Um, but I mean, the, the, the kind of the kind of intellectual work that some of these people were capable of, I mean, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, these were just amazing intellects. So how many times have you taught your Tolkien class? Um, and do the students who sign up for it tend to be hardcore Tolkien fans? It's it's actually a mix. When I first start, when I first offered the Tolkien course, which was I think in the spring of '06, um, I've only been teaching at my college now. This is my sixth year, and I've uh, I'm teaching my Tolkien class for the third time now. I've I've taught it every other year, and um, when I first offered it, I really expected it to be almost entirely full of of uh, you know you know amateur Tolkien experts. Uh, in fact, I was I was so 
uh, well, not not concerned about this, but I was so suspicious of that uh, that the first time I taught the class, I actually gave a diagnostic exam on the first day of class. I passed out a essentially a short Tolkien trivia um, exam just to see where people were. Um, you know, so that I could figure out you know, by which questions they could answer and which questions they wouldn't answer, you know, whether or not these were people who have just seen the movies or whether they're people who have, you know, who, you know, know the Silmarillion backwards and forwards. Um, and and I was surprised, you know, I, I, because, of course, if, if it had turned out, as I had suspected, that most of them already knew it really well, then, you know, it would have you know, obviously kind of changed some of the conversations we could have uh, than, you know, if there were a whole bunch of people who had never read the books. But I was surprised, you know, according to, you know, the the, the fairly unscientific uh, results of, of my little exam, uh, it seemed to me that, you know, more than 80 percent had never really read the books or had only read them so long ago that they, you know, they were it was as if they were reading them for the first time. And that's been my experience all the way through. There's always a core of people who, who are, you know, really love Tolkien and are really dedicated to Tolkien who take the class. But I found in the, in the post Peter Jackson world of Tolkien studies, even people who identify themselves as Tolkien fans um, don't always know the books that well. Uh, So war obviously plays a major role in Tolkien's writings. Uh, What were his experiences in war and uh, how did that influence him? Sometimes people can get caught up in the epic battles and things that happen in in the Lord of the Rings um, and make the mistake of thinking this is glorifying war. You know, here we have these war heroes and these great, you know, this this what what appears or might feel like a glorification of war. I remember the first time I taught the class, I had a student who at one point was sort of making this objection in class and saying like, man, it just seems, it just seems like this guy is really, is really pro-war, you know, that, it, that he has this like rose-tinted view uh, of, of, of what war and battle is like. And, and I'm just like, well, no, I mean, <laughs> that, that's plainly not true. I mean, this is a guy who, who he was at the Battle of the Somme for crying out loud. I mean, he, uh, you know, as he notes in, in his, you know, this a very brief but poignant note uh, near the end of that of that forward to the Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, he notes that by, by 1918, all but one of his close friends was dead. Um, I, World War I was a devastating experience in his life. So uh, I have a writing student who wanted to write a paper on Tolkien for a college English class and was told by her professor Uh that there aren't enough deep themes in Tolkien to fill a 20-page paper. Uh, What do you think about that? Um, I, I, I think that I, I have a really hard time like sticking to 20 pages on any given chapter. <laughs> uh, um, and I have consistently found that there are very few people who speak that way about fantasy literature in general, or Tolkien in particular, who have actually read it. Um, and I, I actually find myself kind of surprised that there are, there are few pronounce, pronouncements like that that people will make so confidently uh, in such ignorance as they tend to do uh with fantasy but uh but 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 people do but it's really it's just it's just you know openly a kind of bias it's not really based on any kind of uh on any kind of analysis that i can see well so on the other tack uh oxford scholar tom shippey wrote a book called tolkien author of the century uh what do you think of his thesis that tolkien is the most important writer of the 20th century oh i think there's really a lot to it i mean it's hard to argue with you know sort of the basic statistics of his argument. I mean, as far as being, uh, it's hard not to consider him at least among the most influential authors of the century, given how widely read he is. 
And then when you add on top of that the fact that he really is the cornerstone of an entire genre, which has itself been very influential. Um, I'm curious, uh, have you read uh, George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire? Uh, the reason I mentioned that one specifically is that uh, critic Lev Grossman calls uh, George Martin the American Tolkien. I actually haven't read all of them, but I did mm-hmm. read Game of Thrones uh, recently, and I actually I, I do really like it. I mean, the thing, the thing that I think Martin has most in common with Tolkien is the creation of, uh, or, or you know, subcreation to use Tolkien's technical vocabulary, um, of of a really believable world. Some things I kind of enjoyed less. That is, there are some aspects of the world that I found a little bit unpleasant. <laughs> But but that still didn't. But but that's more of like a a personal taste thing, you know. It it it, it still was of I thought a very effective you know literary experience as I was reading it, and that is something which is is the biggest failing of a lot of fantasy literature. Um, it's and this is one thing that you know Tolkien recognizes, um, and that I think a lot of people don't sort of take seriously enough. Um, while he, you know, in his essay on fairy stories, while he's making claims and saying that fantasy literature is some of the greatest and most important literature, you know, some of the, 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 the purest kind of artistic undertaking that a human being can, can do, he also says, he also recognizes it's peculiarly difficult to, 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 to do, I mean, to do well, to succeed in doing. Um, and, you know, a lot of them, a lot of modern fantasy fails to a greater or lesser degree but of course that's not really very simple you know when you're undertaking something that's really hard you know you're much more likely to fail than when you're undertaking something that's easy in a fantasy a, a work of fantasy you have everything you you have the same challenges all of the same challenges that face a work of realistic fiction but another enormous large <laughs> additional challenge on top of that which is to create a new world with new rules the thing that I am most impressed by uh, in, in, his, in Tolkien's accomplishment in The Hobbit is how he eases the reader into that world. Um, it's a really it's, – it's a difficult thing to do, and it's very delicately done by Tolkien. And I have to say, actually, I think Martin does a really good job with that too. It's, the tone is very different, of course, from The Hobbit, but, um, but he also, I thought, did a really good job of – introducing us kind of piece by piece to the world and the way that as you're reading uh, as you're reading through the first book game of thrones um you know the this 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 large and complex world continues to kind of open gradually out around you until by the end you have a pretty good sense of this uh of this you know very large and complex geographical political metaphysical system I want to see where it goes yet. I'm 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 hoping this summer to uh to 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 catch up with the series as far as it's gone. You know, what we're, we're all hoping to see where it goes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I've heard. I've actually, it's one of the reasons I've not been in a hurry because I've been told I have no need to be in a hurry. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I mentioned that I, I listened to your podcast, and I'm still a little bit confused on this one point. Um, do Balrogs okay. have wings? <laughs> <laughs> I believe that it's pretty clear that Balrogs do not have wings, um, but it's very understandable why people would think that they did, because, you know, Tolkien uses a metaphor. You know, the, 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 the crux of the issue, of course, comes in the Bridge of Khazad-dûm when, uh, when there's, you know, the Balrog is both a shadow and a flame, uh, famously. The, his, his own dark power spreads out from him in the visible form of shadow, and Tolkien, when, uh, when the, the Balrog comes out to meet 
Gandalf on the bridge of Khazad Doom, uh, Tolkien first describes the shadow coming out from the Balrog as being like wings. That is, he uses a simile to compare the shadow to wings. And then in the next paragraph, um, takes that simile and makes it into a metaphor that is just says, uh, you know, and then the Balrog's wings surrounded Gandalf. That is, you know, the shadow, which was like wings, and he's now using a metaphor. Um, so people read that and they're like, hey, look, see, he has wings, uh, ignoring the fact that he's about to plummet to his death, um, which presumably a winged creature would not do. It gives you the, the opportunity to engage in careful reading with people and to really be looking at, you know, the patterns of how Tolkien is using words. And, and goodness, in my own classes, when, when I have students writing papers for me, you know, I have to like beg, plead and, and coerce them into doing that. You know, one of the things, one of my goals is always trying to get my students look carefully at the words, read the passage really carefully, pay careful attention to what is really there. And, you know, the people who are arguing that Balrogs have wings are already doing that. I mean, I think they're mistaken, but, but, but they're already, <laughs> they're already doing that important thing. And of course, it also gives an opportunity to talk about his use of language, especially his, uh, his inveterate tendency to use words in senses other than the one that is now current in the 20th century. Uh, you mentioned that Tolkien loved words and probably spent as much time as anyone ever has thinking about words and the sounds of words. But then in the Lord of the Rings, he gives two of the major villains uh, names that are very easily confusable, particularly by my mom. Uh, Sauron and Saruman. <laughs> that, I think, is an example of Tolkien being so immersed in language and in linguistics that things just don't even occur to him. I mean, he would never think of confusing those two things. In his mind, they wouldn't even be similar. Um, and we can see this kind of thing. I mean, the, the famous example that my students always uh, chuckle about <laughs> when I teach the Silmarillion uh, is the, the, the name of the hill that the elven city Tyrion is, is on, which is Tuna, T-U-N-A, um, and even puts the stress on the U so that, you know, sometimes people will pronounce it and want to make it sound fancier by calling it Tuna, but, but it's clearly supposed to be pronounced Tuna. And, <laughs> um, you know, and so it's, this always makes my students giggle, but it seems pretty clear that it never, he wasn't thinking about fish when he, <laughs> when he named it that, you know, that he was thinking of, you know, the, the etymologies of the word in, in the Elvish dialects and, uh, and, it just didn't. It, I feel pretty confident that it just did not strike him uh, that that was also a simple English word that you know that it would create a kind of pun. Uh, so a lot of readers uh, seem to hate Tom Bombdale, who sometimes seems like the Jar Jar Binks of Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> uh, Tolkien no, himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tolkien himself, I think, expressed some reservations about the character. Uh, but what do you think of Tom Bombadil? I think Tom Bombadil is brilliant. I mean, uh, he is certainly strange. Um, I mean, I, I and uh, and I, I, you know, one of the other things that I would uh, really commend <laughs> Peter Jackson for is cutting Tom Bombadil, um, not because I don't like him, but because I think it would have been absolutely futile and almost certainly disastrous to try to represent Tom Bombadil in film. <laughs> I mean, what on earth could you think? about a person on screen who is always like skipping and jumping around and singing about the color of his own clothing. I mean, it just, it would absolutely not, he would look like a, like a, like an idiot uh, on film. One of the things that I think you have to do in order to appreciate Tom Bombadil in the fellowship of the ring is read it aloud or listen to it aloud. And when you do, one of the things that you notice is that Tom Bombadil 
always speaks in verse. Even when what he's saying is represented on the page in prose, it is always in verse, and you can always read his words to the same rhythm of the song that he's always singing, the Ho Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo verse. And a lot of his a lot of his language represented in prose, as I said on the page, but but still still lyrical in in its melodies and rhythm is really quite beautiful. Um, and he, you know, the, the effect that he has on the hobbits in the story, they, uh, they often kind of zone out and are, are taken into visual fantasies when they're listening to him talk um, and sometimes fall asleep and wake up hours later. He, he actually has that same effect on me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's supposed to be in a good way. It's supposed to be in a good way. What did you think of the Peter Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies, and uh, what do you think about Guillermo del Toro's upcoming ho- adaptation of The Hobbit? As I've read more medieval literature, uh, especially studying the Arthurian tradition, I've become sort of more and more sensitive to this. In the Middle Ages, they did a whole lot of just retelling stories. Um, when you were an author looking for material, you know, to write the next great poem on in the Middle Ages. The last thing you did is what a modern person would do. That is, the last thing you would do is actually look for something new. You know, like, oh, I want to tell a story that no one has ever told before. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, you would, you would instead want to go to, to retell something that had been told lots of times. Um, to, to, to make stuff up uh, was, was actually a vice, not a virtue. Uh, and many <laughs> medieval authors would actually fake uh, sources. Like, that is, they would pretend that they weren't making something up. They would, they would pretend they were just translating it, even when they weren't. Um, so, you know, in the medieval tradition, there's this very robust tradition of retelling stories and retelling stories. And looking at how those stories change and what new versions of the stories emphasize. Uh, uh, really, it, it's it's a really interesting and rich study. And so that's what I, you know, what, when when I talk to my students about the films, it's one of the things that I always try to emphasize. It's not a question of, you know, are they screwing Tolkien up? Are they are they getting Tolkien wrong? Um, it's not a question of right or wrong. They're they, you know, the films. Uh, the first thing you have to sort of realize is that the films are a different, they're a retelling of the story. They're not the books just put on screen. So it's not a question of right or wrong. This is, this is, this is a new version of the story told in a different medium and many years afterwards by different authors. Um, they are, of course, based upon, they have many things in common with, but it's not just Tolkien made into film. Um, so when I talk about the films, I, I, I like to think in terms and to talk in terms. I mean, basically what we're doing is, is comparing and contrasting two different stories um, with largely the same characters and things like that, you know, and obviously many parallels between them, but they're, but they're still different stories. Um, and when I compare and contrast the two stories, I, I find them very interesting as films. I thought the films were very good. My initial experience uh, when seeing them in the theaters, when they came out was I just awe at the visual effects. I mean, it, I still think the greatest accomplishment of those films, um, they did a wonderful job, especially in setting and scenery, of really capturing a lot of things. I mean, I remember watching some of the, you know, the, 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 the scene, for instance, when, when they're entering into Moria, uh, you know, when we see Isengard for the first time, you know, when, uh, you know, the very, very last visual sequence at the end of of the fellowship of the ring when sam and frodo are going into the fl duoth and you have the really rough rocky country uh, ahead of them there's just so many times when i was watching the films and saying that's you know that's perfect that is just that is such a beautiful representation of 
you know, the landscape and the world that, that Tolkien was, was describing. I think it was just stunning. Now, one of the unfortunate things is that, of course, the more times I watch the films, the less that sense of awe and wonder sort of impacts me. You know, it's easy to take for granted the 10th the time you see the movie. Um, the primary departure that I think that they, you know, the, the, the primary difference between the two stories, between the spirit of the two stories, is that the films systematically make the story less heroic, less epic uh, than Tolkien's. Um, that is, the films go to a lot of effort to humanize the characters and the and to make sure that no character is really beyond a place where the, where the, the, the audience can identify or relate to that person. Um, you know, and for this reason, they take Aragorn down a whole bunch of pegs, um, you know, and make him into this, you know, sort of divided struggling character who finally pulls things together in the end. But, um, but, you know, is, is, the place where he is in the beginning of the films is very different um, from Strider as they meet him in the books. Um, and even Gandalf, um, and oh my goodness, poor Faramir. Uh, I mean, Faramir is this legendary epic, very much above the normal character uh, in Tolkien. And uh, and he is humanized in some really powerful and interesting ways in the films. I really like what Peter Jackson uh, and, and company did with uh, you know his relationship to Denethor and stuff that was really great, um, but very different from the books and and in ways that I'm not sure that I like. I mean that is, I think that you really lose something. The Lord of the Rings is told fundamentally from the Hobbit's point of view, and therefore from the Hobbit point of view, I mean Tolkien gives us people that we can identify with, people who are operating like on our level, uh, people whose stature we could achieve, and they're the Hobbits. You know, uh, we we can identify with Merry and Pippin, we can identify with Sam, we can identify to some extent with Frodo, but. Um, but we're not supposed to identify with Aragorn. We're not supposed to identify with Faramir. They're the big people, capital B, capital P. Uh, and and they're, they are above and beyond. And I think that that's actually a big part of the power that the books have um, and ways that they affect people is that they create there – is a, there is a mythological impact of the story uh, in the books, which the movies really lose because they try to bring everything down to the level of – you know, almost everybody in the movie is on some level, you know, still kind of like a, you know, a, 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 an average guy at heart. And, you know, no one is just absolutely heroic. Um, and that, I think, is a little bit sad. As far as the, the, the Hobbit films, well, it'll be interesting. Um, they have a serious balancing act to perform uh, in The Hobbit. Um, and I think the primary thing... Um, and I talk about this a little bit in the very first of my Hobbit lectures that I don't really envy the project of making a Hobbit film following the Lord of the Rings films because, you know, everyone is going to be expecting a big epic film. And if you were to do a film that follows the spirit of the book, you know, it would be it would seem simplistic, silly and childish as the Hobbit as a book often is simplistic, silly and childish, or at least sounds that way or comes off that way. Um, and. So I think pretty much the only choice that you have in making those films is to make them, you know, to sort of render that story in an, in an epic mode, which is going to be, therefore, wildly untrue to the tone of the story. So I think um, I would predict that there are going to be far more people who uh, um, get very offended uh, and will complain about the films and say, oh, you know, and, and talk about the violence that they're doing to the books because they're going to have to depart from 
the spirit of the books in some pretty radical ways um, of, of, of the book that is, you know, they're, they're planning two films and uh, I, I believe my understanding, I, I, I don't, you know, I haven't seen the script. I have no idea, but my understanding of what they're doing with the Hobbit film films is to really try to place this, you know, the plot of the Hobbit. That is the story of the quest for the lonely mountain of Bilbo and the dwarves within the larger, um, narrative framework of what what else is going on in middle earth at that time that is like you know the story that the story of the uh the rings of power uh as we get it at the end of the silmarillion or as we see it uh contextualized in the appendices of the lord of the rings um and that you know there's i think something that's very worthwhile about that project of course tolkien himself spent a lot of time going back and integrating the hobbit into the larger story that he was telling and the larger uh you know the larger world that he had fleshed out um because of course he published the hobbit in 37 almost 20 years before the the you know the lord of the rings began to 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 come out um and you know a lot of revising and and uh, recontextualizing needed to happen in order to integrate those things within the same broad historical story so a film which accomplishes that you know is in its way kind of in the spirit of what tolkien was doing at the end of his career but uh but i think there are going to be some people that it's going to be hard to sell that to and it's going to be easy to it would be easy to kind of take it over and push it in a direction that, which is, which just moves in very different directions from the way that Tolkien's stories do. So I'll be interested to see how they, uh, how they manage that. So uh, if listeners are interested in Tolkien scholarship, what sort of books, journals, or conferences should they know about? Well, let's see. Um, you know, with, with books, I mean, you've already mentioned Tom Shippey's book, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of the century. Um, and that's certainly you know, Shippey is certainly a great place to start. Um, there are a bunch of other that are, you know really, uh, you know really really excellent scholars and, and, and really important thinkers on this who, who still write uh, very approachably. I would recommend. I would certainly recommend uh, Doug Anderson's annotated hobbit you know he wrote a um it's a an edition of the hobbit that has his annotations around it which contains a lot of really uh, cool stuff about the changes the story went through. Uh, and uh and and a lot of the the kind of the sources and analogs to the story it's very interesting um there are some other uh some other critics whose uh whose work i very much admire like verlin flieger and michael drought um but uh conferences um well i mean the the big one that i would that i would plug right now as i've as i've been plugging um is uh, one that I'm going to be appearing at along with a bunch of other Tolkien scholars uh, in, in August, the festival in the Shire, uh, which is taking place in Wales in, in, in August. And that is going to be an amazing thing. I'm really excited about that because, I mean, one of the things about attending Tolkien conferences, you tend to get most of the time one thing or another. That is either a fan convention or a scholarly conference. Um, and scholarly conferences tend to be pretty boring and therefore not very interesting for most people to go to. In fact, many of them not even very interesting for scholars to go to. Um, and then, you know, fan conventions, which are which, you know, can be very fun and very dynamic, um, but often don't have, uh, you know, a really strong intellectual component. Um, and I really admire what they're doing in the Festival of the Shire, which is really kind of bringing all of these different elements together uh, into one big event. Um, so that that's one that I'm really excited about because it's you know it's for me it's one of the things that I am most committed to is you know the reason I set up my podcast in the first place is you know I'm committed to the idea that 
you know one can do you know can do scholarly work on on something like Tolkien and really share it with a general audience you know and not just publish it in academic journals exclusively and and you know it's, it's academics in general do too much sort of internal focusing and just, you know, sharing papers among themselves and, 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 and keeping things to themselves rather than really focusing outward uh, on general audiences. And so, I mean, I really love the way in which the festival in the Shire is really um, self-consciously bringing all of those elements together and, and, uh, uh, and really trying to create a richer environment. There are also you know, a, a couple of others which do sort of bridge those a bit more. One that I would mention is MythCon, the uh, the convention of the the Mythopoeic Society, and that's a, that's a really good conference. I haven't gotten to go yet. Uh, I always am hoping to go and haven't quite made it yet, but, I, but I've heard great things about it. Okay, great. Well, Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Corey for joining us on the show setting us straight on Balrogs. <laughs> Actually, uh, w- one thing he he's needs to set us straight on, too, is our, our pronunciation, because for my entire life, I've always thought of it as J.R.R. Tolkien, but Corey says Tolkien, and he is the Tolkien professor, so I'm sure he's right. So uh, it's going to be hard to change a lifetime's worth of habit, but I am going to try very hard to say Tolkien from now on, although I'm sure I'll, I'll sort of just alternate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... Yeah, I actually uh, corrected my pronunciation in the interview. Like, uh, I pronounced it Tolkien at first, and then after, and then afterward, he said Tolkien. I was like, oh, I better <laughs> it Tolkien from now on. So uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll give that our best shot. So so speaking of Tolkien, um, a few years ago, uh, the local library was doing an event. You know, every year they do a, an event to try to get kids interested in reading, and they pick a book that kids across the country all read. Uh, in this year, it was, the book was The Hobbit that they had picked. And so they had called the event Make Reading a Hobbit. <laughs> I want to make it clear I had nothing to do with picking that. Great way to get kids to read, like by making an awful, awful pun. <laughs> so um, so one of the things that they arranged to do is they, they asked, since, you know, since I'm a fantasy writer, they asked if I would come down and lead a book discussion group on The Hobbit. And I said, sure, you know, and I thought I would be you know, all prepared for that. I mean, I've read The Hobbit probably 20, 25 times or something. And, uh, you know, I've read The Lord of the Rings and I've read, you know, Tom Shippey's book, Tolkien, author of the century that we talked about. And I've read Tolkien's letters and his biography and this this book on the Inklings and, and on and on. I've listened to lectures and stuff. And, I, you know, so I wasn't expecting that I would get there and there would be like two like middle school girls <laughs> who knew more than I did. But, but that, in fact, is what happened. So I get there. And there's these two middle school girls, and I mean, they had read The Silmarillion, they had read, like, all ten volumes of the history of Middle-earth. They were, like, writing their own Tolkien fan poetry in Elvish. You know, speaking of the of the writing the poetry in Elvish, uh, and, you know, Corey obviously talked about uh, Tolkien's affinity for languages and whatnot, but it's kind of funny, like, Tolkien just so, totally gets this complete pass on, on the fact that he made up all these languages and stuff. Like, if anybody else did that, like, in the contemporary fantasy publishing, like, probably people would think, God, that guy's crazy. He made up a whole language for his book? That's nuts. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, but I think that's something that makes Tolkien so singular. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about Tom Shippey's book, Tolkien, Author of the Century. And, you know, one of his arguments for, for Tolkien being so important is that he did something that no one has ever done before or since, 
you know, which is to start out by making up a language and then to make up the cultures that might have produced those languages and then to make up the history that might have produced those cultures and mm -hmm. to go through all this world building before even thinking about the plot and the characters and, and things like that. I mean, right. no one has ever done anything like that, to, to, to my knowledge, before gone through that sort of process to, to write mm -hmm. a novel. You know, like, uh, and I think a lot of readers assume that if there is a few words of a made-up language in a book that the, the author must have made up, there must actually be this whole made-up language. And so, like, I've, I've heard George R. R. Martin say, you know, that people will ask him for a, um, you know, just like, like a dictionary of, um, you know, the Dothraki language or, or Valyrian or whatever. And he says, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a philologist like Tolkien. I'm a professional fiction writer and, you know, I have to... I don't have as much time to, to do this stuff as he did. And, you know, right now there are eight words in Dothraki because those are the eight I needed for the book. And when, yeah. I need, when I need a ninth one, I'll make up the ninth one, you know. But, uh, you know, like with this uh, this event at the library um, with, with these these girls who were just huge Tolkien fans, uh, we had a, just a great, great discussion. And, and at the end of the event, you know, people were just wondering, like, they're like, who are you anyway? <laughs> And so and I had a couple of copies of, of Realms of Fantasy magazine with my stories in them. So I, sh I was showing them to people. And these girls were just like blown away. They're like, wow, there are actually like whole magazines devoted to fantasy. And they were so excited. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times people will take the low circulation numbers of the, the short fiction magazines as evidence that people, particularly young people, aren't interested in, in reading short fiction. And I always think of that. And I'm just absolutely convinced that there are huge numbers of people out there who just love to read those sorts of magazines if they just knew that they existed oh sure yeah no i think that definitely that's a huge problem is that it's uh it's the obscurity factor not uh irrelevance you know it's uh plenty of people who would be interested it's just that uh it, it is incredibly hard to discover the magazines uh i mean i i know when i was growing up uh you know I, we didn't have any barnes and noble uh near me at the time and uh so all i had was the walden books and and you know the magazine section is so relatively small um that you know they didn't have any short fiction magazines so, you know, I, I mean, the only way you would discover them is if you read an anthology and like, sort of pay attention to the header notes and or um, the copyright page to see where uh, stories may have originally appeared and stuff like that. But then, like, again, finding them is, is another issue. Um, of course, now we have the Internet. So, like, you know, if you actually hear of a magazine, you can go look it up. Um, you know, so I mentioned Tom Shippey's book, Tolkien, Author of the Century. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wanted to get get your reaction about, you know, do you agree with that? Who do you think might be? considered the author of the century and i don't want to put you in an uncomfortable mm. position or anything so i'm just gonna like um remove myself from consideration right off the bat right well but... that's kind of you i i, I was gonna ask you know <laughs> well you know i mean i don't want to step on any toes dave but um yeah i mean uh i mean as far as influence goes it is it is a perfectly reasonable argument to to make for tolkien i mean no, no one else comes to mind who is like you know more of a influence on you know, literature in the 21st century or 20th century. But uh, yeah, no, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Um, I, I, mean, know, I mean, do you, do you have any alternate suggestions as to who? Well, I was trying to think. I mean, I think when you're the only person I've really been able to come up with um, who I would even really consider um, mm -hmm. on the same level of sort of influence and impact would be maybe George Orwell. But oh, really? even him, I don't think really... Uh, Actually, I, I was just thinking, like, I mean, like Hemingway or somebody like that. I mean, wouldn't, uh, you know, somebody like that sort of be in well, the running? Well, I mean, Hemingway was certainly influential on the style of fiction writers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, did he have any impact on politics? Did he have any impact on 
society I'm in, what makes, you know, somebody, you know, I mean, like Orwell, I mean, you just, people mentioned 1984. I mean, you can't, mm-hmm. you just gave us this whole apparatus for thinking about totalitarianism and, you know, the, uh, the extent of laws and things like that. And, and Tolkien was so important. Like the Lord of the Rings was almost like the Bible of the early environmental movement. Mm. And so it seems like when you're evaluating an author's importance, you know, it's, it's not just their impact on literature, but their impact on the world that you have to take into consideration. So, I mean, it's a, it's obviously a big topic, but maybe, you know, maybe if people, uh, you know, have their own opinions, they can, uh, post comments about this on our uh, you know comments thread but um you know just maybe just for us uh you know since since i grew up reading books full of elves and dwarves and mm-hmm. playing video games full of elves and dwarves and and so on you know it's, it's almost impossible for me to imagine you know a, a world without tolkien a, a sort of culture without tolkien you know I, I don't have a whole lot of time to play video games these days but i still try to kind of keep up on on the scene and what's coming out and stuff. And so when I'm in the bookstore, I'll just kind of browse through the video game magazines and you flip through them and just look at the, uh, the artwork and stuff. And it's just like page after page. It's just like sexy elf space Marine, (laughs) sexy elf space Marine, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I'm kind of like, wow. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we would have the same kind of image of elves that we do without Tolkien, but it's certainly not a given that we would. And, you know, as far as the Space Marine thing goes, I mean, it seems like you can trace that kind of back to Doom, to James Cameron's Aliens, to Heinlein's Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of wonder, as far, just as far as video games go, it's kind of a, a side topic, but if, if there had been no Tolkien and there had been no Heinlein, would we have <laughs> the iconography of video games so dominated by, by elves and Space Marines? Um, you know, like... Um, like Voltaire said, you know, if God didn't exist, it would be necessary for us to invent him. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wonder, you know, do, do video games just need elves and space <laughs> marines so badly that, that they become a kind of like archetype that they exert almost this magnetic influence that, that video game makers, you know, would, would come to them regardless? Or could, could we have a video game landscape that was entirely different? I mean, uh, like in Alan Moore's Watchmen, he... Uh, sort of assumes that in a world in which superheroes really existed, people wouldn't want to read comic books about superheroes because mm-hmm. uh, it wouldn't be that kind of imaginative mm-hmm. thrill. And so he imagines everyone everyone in, in the Watchmen universe reads uh, pirate <laughs> comic books. Right. No, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. Um, I mean, I think in, in the two cases you're talking about there, I, I think that it's easier to lay all the credit for uh, the sort of fantasy archetype is at, uh, at Tolkien's feet, whereas... You know, I think it's it's easier to imagine that, you know, well, you know, the Space Marine thing, that doesn't necessarily trace it back right to Heinlein. I mean, you know, it would be easier to imagine. I mean, that that to me seems like easier to sort of extrapolate. Oh, well, like we have Marines and it's like, well, what would happen in the future? I mean, that's not like as huge a leap as the sort of fully realized, uh, you know, world that Tolkien created, you know, that it's like just this completely separate thing that like really hadn't really been done before. And uh you know, sort of taken all these uh, all these bits of mythology and stuff that we were familiar with, but turned it into something completely different. I, I do th- I do notice that there seems to be kind of a generational um, difference when it comes to to Tolkien because you know when when we were growing up, I mean, Tolkien was obviously a major presence, you know, in in uh, in our reading and in um, the culture and stuff. But there were tons of other fantasy books around, and so. 
Tolkien didn't have this kind of singular place that I feel like he had for people of our parents' generation. I mean, like uh, when um, Bob Salvatore, um, he, he writes the, the sort of Dritz to Erden Dark Elf books, um, which actually the, the first one, Homeland, I, I really, really like. But, uh, you know, he, he was one of uh, the instructors who came to Odyssey when I was there. And he just said, you know, when he was in college, uh, he was, a, I think, a journalism major or something. And there was a big snowstorm over, you know, sort of around Christmas, and the whole campus was shut down for a week, and there was really nothing to do. And a girl on his floor in his dorm just had a copy of Lord of the Rings that she gave to him to read. And he read it, and he had never read anything like that before, and it just changed his world. And when the next semester started, he switched his major to English, and, and was just like, I have to be a fantasy writer. You know, for us, I mean, probably most people of our generation didn't encounter Tolkien first as their first fantasy because, uh, you know, when you're younger, you probably start off with something more intended for young readers, although The Hobbit is obviously, you know, intended for younger readers. But, uh, you know, uh, unless you just have a, a parent who happened to give you that one first, I mean, chances are equally good that you ended up reading Robert Jordan first or like, you know, the Robert Asprin myth series, you know, which uh, is a different sort of fantasy, but fantasy nonetheless. Um, so I want to, you know, it's, it's almost, uh, it's been almost 10 years since, uh, Fellowship of the Ring came out. So mm. I thought maybe it might be interesting to just, uh, look back on, on those Peter Jackson movies and just think about our, our general impressions of them now. Actually, have <laughs> you, uh, have you seen, uh, Peter Jackson recently? Yeah. Yeah. So he, uh, he lost a lot of weight. He's, uh, looking all svelte. Yeah. He looks, he looks good. He's, he, yeah, he, but he, he lost like three hobbits worth of weight, I mean, <laughs> uh, but, but he looks really good. But, uh. I don't know. So what do you do you have any thoughts on those movies looking back now? Yeah, you know, I after we did um, or, you know, in, in preparation for this uh, show, I, I rewatched uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've always actually uh, this is maybe a kind of sort of controversial opinion, but I mean, I've always kind of felt like they were overrated, uh, even though I did enjoy them. You know, even at the time, I, I, I didn't really think that the special effects were as good as people seem to think they were generally like. For instance, the the battle scene in Moria where they fight uh, the troll and, and all those orcs. Like, the, the troll, like, I, I never really thought, like, the troll looked real or anything. Like, I mean, um, it's sort of that digital, the, those digital effects that, uh, like in Star Wars, uh, you know, just seem incongruous with the reality of the actors. Like, it doesn't seem real enough yet to me that it, it's hard for me to buy. Um, although the special effects were certainly great in... Um, turning New Zealand into Middle Earth and to sort of making the hobbits look the appropriate size. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean uh, like a lot of them, a lot of the monsters and stuff like I didn't, I didn't really like them. Like the, like the, the Balrog even, uh, you know, it's seemed a little bit too phony to me, even though it looked pretty cool. Yeah. I mean the, the special effects are not all, not always quite where they have to be. Like, like when the characters are running across the bridge of Casadum, mm -hmm. you know, they just look like 3d models to me. But uh, I mean, I do love, love that movie fellowship of the ring and i mean if you want to define it's, it, i have to i would have to honestly define it as my favorite movie um if if the definition is what movie has motivated me to rewatch it the most <laughs> times you know <clears throat> in the last 20 years or so i mean i i, I, I must have rewatched that movie 20 or 25 times by now and it's interesting because uh i've watched i've rewatched that one so many times and i've only watched the two towers i don't know maybe three or four times and in, in return of the king twice and uh so i was trying to think about like why do i like fellowship of the ring and i i, I you know two towers i think is kind of okay return of the king i think is quite good but they ha they they haven't certainly motivated me to rewatch them in the same way that fellowship of the ring has so i, I was trying to kind of think about what makes fellowship of the ring so rewatchable to me mm -hmm. 
And I mean, part of it is, is got to be, you know, kind of like I was talking about with Star Wars, that the characters kind of start out in their normal lives, and then everything they see is new, and there's this big change in all the characters. You know, we didn't really plan it to talk about Star Wars and Lord of the Rings in uh, successive weeks. Mm. It just kind of happened that way. But since we did, I mean, it's kind of, we can't help, at least I can't help looking at Lord of the Rings kind of with Star Wars on the brain. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, kind of like I was saying that I liked in Star Wars, I liked that the good guys die. I kind of like, I, I, I kind of feel like that makes Fellowship of the Ring more powerful to me too, because, you know, Gandalf dies and uh, Boromir dies, especially Gandalf dying. I mean, I just, I just, I weep like a baby every, <laughs> every time, every time I watch that scene. It's just so, because uh, Gandalf is like a character I grew up with, you know, he's like a, you know, it's, it's, uh, he's like somebody I know, but, uh, and in, in the two towers in Return of the King, none of the like characters that you really care about, certainly nobody I cared about as much as Gandalf dies. And, and, and like the, the scene where Faramir dies is like my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, you know, and, and in Two Towers, not only does, does nobody you really care about dies, but somebody comes back to life. So it's, uh, <laughs> um, but so there's that. But I think just for me, I, I kind of like the, I mean, as someone who just grew up, as I was saying, you know, reading books about elves and dwarves and, and playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff, just watching Fellowship of the Ring was so thrilling to me to just see that kind of dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. depicted on film in a really intelligent um like artistic sort of ambitious kind of way i mean because you know if i were to list my favorite you know epic fantasy slash sword and sorcery type movie right it would be fellowship of the ring mm-hmm. and then like my second i'm not even sure what it, like i have trouble even thinking of good candidates i mean i'm sure i'm sure there's there there are, there are some but I mean, there was just just such a dearth of good movies in that vein before Lord of the Rings came along. Right. Well, I mean, if The Princess Bride counts, I mean, I, you know, I, that's always been my favorite movie for a long time. But um, when you mentioned D&D, uh, that actually reminds me, like, when I was just rewatching Fellowship of the Ring, I was so struck how much it seems like a D&D adventure. And obviously, Dungeons & Dragons was heavily inspired by by lord of the rings to the point where like you know kind of it was like ripping them off and they even had uh, a race in in dungeons and dragons called hobbits where i think they must have got sued or something and because they had to change it to halflings or whatever yeah you know i mean just watching like um you know them go through the mines of moria like i mean that's that's such a D adventure like right there just like on screen that's like the closest i've ever seen to D come to life on in a movie um although actually um i think it kind of suffers by comparison to that because I've played so many D and D adventures and I've read so many sort of D and D novels and, and other Epic fantasies that like when I'm watching fellowship of the ring or, or rereading it or whatever, you know, I mean, those scenes, they just seem like, God, this is just so, this is such a D and D adventure. And because I'm saying it suffers because a lot of D and D ventures, while they're fun and they're cool, there's like this element of randomness that just doesn't really um, strike me the right way in terms of plotting. Like, I mean, for instance, because it's like, okay, well, here's a random encounter, and uh, and like this sort of Balrog, it just sort of shows up out of nowhere, and you're like, well, <laughs> okay. Well, it's kind of like we were talking in an earlier episode about how hard it can be sometimes to go back and watch or read something that's been imitated relentlessly mm-hmm. when you're familiar with all of the imitations sure and that that sort of leeches a lot of the novelty out of the the original thing 
Um, right. And certainly nothing has been imitated as relentlessly mm. as, as Lord of the Rings. Um, well, that's true. But um, like in terms of, of the Star Wars parallels, I mean, I must have noticed this in the past, but I'd kind of forgotten it. But there's such a parallel between Gandalf dying in Fellowship of the Ring and Obi-Wan Kenobi dying in, uh, you know, A New Hope. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it works really well, I think. I mean, just from a writing perspective, you know, when I'm reading student writing, you know, by far the biggest problem I have with, with student writing is that there are no complications in the story, um, meaning that nothing ever happens that fundamentally alters the situation for the worse. And usually in a good story, you know, you have to have numerous complications so that like right before the climax, the the worst complications of all have all happened and the situation has never been worse than it is right now. Mm-hmm. And and the char- and so when the characters assuming the char- assuming the story has a happy ending, when the characters uh sort of climb out of that, you know, pit of despair, it's it's all the more powerful. And so in, in a lot of student writing there'll just this the situation will remain essentially static and incidents will happen. You know, so like the characters, they might go through the mines of Mori and fight some monsters and stuff. But when they emerge on the other side, nothing has really changed. Mm-hmm. And in Fellowship of the Ring, you know, when Gandalf dies, I mean, up until that point, you know, there'd been this wise old man. And anytime they needed to know what to do, they could basically ask, ask him and, and be confident that he would give them good advice. And when he dies, everything's changed because now you have all these these younger, much less experienced characters who have to make decisions for themselves and, and that pattern kind of continues throughout fellowship of the ring where frodo is stripped of gandalf and he's stripped of boromir and aragorn and he just he has sam along but uh you know he has to become a lot more self-reliant than, than he had been at the beginning of the story yeah you know it's interesting uh, though talking about um the parallels between star wars and lord of the rings um i wonder how much of it is really it's it's not just star wars and lord of the rings it's like that hero's journey you know the joseph campbell as you know, sort of famously written about. Uh, I mean, I think his writings probably are, you know, Tolkien probably predates Campbell's writings, if I'm not mistaken. But um, I mean, certainly people, other people besides Campbell must have been aware of that sort of archetypal story before. Uh, okay, but so what do you, uh, what do you think of this new Hobbit movie that's uh, in the works? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm pretty excited about it just because, like, I've always been much more of a fan of The Hobbit than Lord of the Rings. Like, I mean, uh, you know, while The Lord of the Rings is great and all, I, I just I just love The Hobbit so much. And um, I, I'm a little nervous just because Guillermo del Toro, um, I mean, I, I really liked The Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, but I haven't been overly impressed with his, uh, his other films, uh, all the ones that he did in English, actually. I mean, I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but... Like Hellboy was pretty good, and I never saw Hellboy too. But I mean, like uh, Mimic and uh, oh, and Blade too. God, those are such terrible movies. <laughs> um, so I'm just I'm not a hundred percent sold on him. Though with Peter Jackson sort of producing and you know Del Toro having you know proven like that he you know can shoot a very sort of artistically shot and uh, well directed films like uh, with Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. I'm cautiously optimistic, but. I'm a little dubious also because like they're doing they're doing two films out of the one book and it's not just breaking the one book into two films they're like sort of doing additional material that sort of bridges the gap between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings so I think that's going to be more difficult to pull off. Uh, all of Guillermo del Toro's movies that I've seen I've I've had no complaints about the directing you mm-hmm. know I mean I, I like the the cinematography and the uh, the costume design and stuff has just been superlative. I actually quite enjoyed Hellboy too. <laughs> I mean. Uh, 
I had I had some issues with it, but I actually I just really loved the character Prince Nuada. Uh, he's sort of the the villain, but he's a very sort of sympathetic uh, villain, and he's very kind of arrogant and sensitive and uh, sort of misguidedly idealistic. And until they give me a, a Nine Princes in Amber movie, you know, that's sort of the closest I've seen to a kind of Nine Princes in Amber sort of character in a in a fantasy movie like that. I'm really excited to see what Del Toro does with just the visuals. And uh, that was actually, I was a little disappointed to, to read, you know, they're, they're trying to, I guess, make it have real continuity with the Lord of the Rings films and get as many of the same actors back and, and stuff like that. And I hadn't actually, it hadn't actually occurred to me that, that they would do that. But like, um, you know, it sounds like they're going to try to get, you know, Elrond back and... Uh, um, right, Ian McKellen is back as Gandalf. Ian McKellen, right, is back as Gandalf. It's, it's unfortunate about Elrond. I just like, he was like the worst part of the movies, I thought. Like, I, I just hate... Uh, what's his name? Uh, Hugh, uh, Hugh, Hugh Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving. I, uh, I just hate him so much. I... Well, it was it was funny, you know. I, I was joking that you know when you, when when you see him kind of in the prologue sequence mm-hmm. in Fellowship of the Ring, you're like, wow, geez, even three thousand years ago, didn't this guy have any hair? <laughs> uh, I just I, I don't know. It's, it's probably a leftover resentment from the Matrix because I really really hated him <laughs> in the Matrix. But it's like I every time I saw Elrond, he's I expected him to say like Mister Anderson <laughs> like at the end of every sentence. And I mean, I'm not, I wasn't disappointed that they're getting a lot of the same actors back because I disliked the actors. I mean, like, uh, like Ian McKellen in particular, I mean, was just absolutely perfect as, as Gandalf. Mm-hmm. But like when I had imagined like a Del Toro Hobbit movie, I was just kind of imagining seeing something new, you know, mm-hmm. seeing like what comes out of his imagination and his, his visualization. And so now I'm thinking like, are they going to re- reuse the same Hobbit, you know, Hobbit mm-hmm. Hole sets and the same Rivendell sets and stuff, which were all great, but... You know, I was kind of looking forward to seeing something, some new interpretation. Mm. Um, I guess, like, I, I saw a thing where Del Toro said that he didn't like the um, wargs um, in mm. the Two Towers, that he, he never imagined them looking like hyenas, so he's going to mm-hmm. change that. What I'm really looking forward to is seeing Smog on screen. You know, like, I, I can't wait to see how they depict him and, like, you know, how they voice him. Um, you know, one of the things um, I really remember about The Hobbit, like, from when I was a kid... Uh, my uh, stepdad had some sort of, I don't know, it was like it was like some sort of record that had like, you know, voice work from The Hobbit. I, it wasn't like an audiobook, but it was like some sort of early precursor to audiobooks or something. I don't know what it was, but it had a lot of the dialogue from like Lord of the Rings on it. And so like it had this just like awesome reading of Smog just like, sounding so, you know, booming and villainous. Uh, I just I, I always remembered that. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how they do that uh, on the film. Yeah, I mean, and Smog is just such a great, great character. But again, like like you were saying, like that the special effects aren't quite there, mm-hmm. you know, like with the cave troll and stuff. I mean, I'm really, that's the thing I'm really nervous about is are they mm-hmm. going to be able to create a, a dragon that, you know, doesn't just look like a, a, a big CG effect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, the effects have come a long way in the time since the Lord of the Rings films were made. And um, also, I think making a non-human creature like a dragon or non-humanoid creature like a dragon is, is a lot easier than making something like that cave troll, which is, you know, even though it's obviously inhuman, it's humanoid. And I, I don't know. I think there's just something about the alienness of a dragon that it's, it's like easier to capture with the digital effects because uh, they're like less familiar to us. Like, whereas, um, you know, we're really used to seeing what humanoid creatures look like when they move around. And so it looks more phony. Yeah, but I mean, like doing a dragon is kind of like doing the winged mounts of the Nazgul in mm-hmm. um, Two Towers and, and Return of the King. And, and those are cool, really cool looking, but they always just look like CG to mm-hmm. me. You know, they just don't seem to me to have the same reality. You know, like, I guess that's another reason maybe why I prefer Fellowship of the Ring, because when you have the Dark Riders and their horses, you know, horses look like real horses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
but uh i mean so that's that's one thing that makes me a little nervous another another thing that makes me a little nervous is uh you know since it was announced that del toro will be directing this this hobbit movie people have dug out this quote from him from a 2006 interview he gave where he says quote i don't like little guys and dragons hairy feet hobbits i don't like sword and sorcery i hate all that stuff <laughs> what <laughs> wow i'm really i'm really surprised they picked him to direct after he said something like that yeah i mean that's the kind of thing like you know you say and then they're like hey how'd you like to direct the hobbit and you're like oh <laughs> damn it yeah yeah <laughs> that's actually we were talking about that a little bit with this show i mean <laughs> that we're, you know here we are talking you know blabbing for you know half an hour or so every week you know and i'm sure we're gonna say stuff that we we end up regretting because pretty much everything i say i end up regretting <laughs> but i do i do sort of wonder if i'm gonna end up in a del toro like situation where i mean probably no one's gonna like offer to let me direct a movie or anything but right, right. you know i can sort of imagine you know if i wanted to uh you know they might offer me to write some big uh write for some yeah. big video game universe or, yeah, yeah. or or a movie franchise or something and they're like oh dave we were just listening to episode 48 <laughs> of geek's guide to the galaxy in which you called our franchise quote you know a festering boil on the ass of pop culture <laughs> and, yeah, no, I mean, I, I worry about that, too, just because, like, you know, I might throw some offhand comment about how I, you know, hate this or that, like, sort of subgenre, and then somebody comes forward and says, hey, you want to edit this, like, and it becomes really popular all of a sudden, <laughs> so somebody says, hey, you want to edit an anthology on this subject? I'm like, uh, yeah, I don't know. And then you have so, to, like, then you have to, like, walk it back. You'll be like, no, no, that was, that was, that was a long time ago. I mean, that was, like, two, two and a half weeks ago. I mean, I've totally... <laughs> I've, yeah. I've had more. I mean, because, you know, he sort of quoted, you know, Del Toro was sort of quoted as like totally walking back this this thing. Oh, um, yeah, I bet. <laughs> but uh, that does make you a little nervous that he's like, I hate hot. Like, you know, out of all the things he could say to hate, you know, <laughs> right. he's like, I hate the hobbits, particularly their hairy feet, you know. Right. He actually kind of <laughs> looks like a like a hobbit, like, a, you know, like not the same size as a hobbit. But if you shrink him down with the digital effects, he would totally look like a hobbit, I think. You know what? Maybe his feet are hairy. Maybe he's just like, you know, it's just like... He's projecting, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, he's projecting. Yeah, it's like, you know, kids teased him all the time when he was a kid. And so and now it's just like, oh, man, he just he can't stand that hobbits are cool. Well, maybe he can uh, stick himself in the movie as a hobbit. Sort of <laughs> sort of like, you know, Peter Jackson stuck himself in the movie as a like, drunk guy in an alley. Did he? Yeah, when they first uh, enter um, Bree, there's oh, like it... this like drunk guy who like burps into the camera and stumbles huh. away. And that's that's Peter Jackson. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, but when you were talking about um, the riders, you know, how they, you know, they look like horses and everything. They look good. That just reminded me of uh, one of the really, really cool effects I thought of um, in Fellowship uh, and I guess, well, in all the movies, really. But um, was the, the effect when, you know, when uh, Frodo puts the ring on and he's in that sort of shadowy realm or whatever. And, and it's like it's so creepy and scary. It's like, oh, my God. I mean, that's that's not actually how I ever pictured it when reading Lord of the Rings or anything like, that it would be so horrifying. But it was a really cool effect. Although, like, Corey was talking about how many problems they're going to have adapting The Hobbit in the wake of The Lord of the Rings. I mean, that's a, that's a big one, because in The Lord of the Rings, the ring is supposed to be sinister. Mm -hmm. And in The Hobbit, you know, it was written originally, the ring was just, hey, it's a cool magic ring that makes you invisible. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it doesn't seem like, like every time Bilbo uses the ring to become invisible, that there's just going to be, like, freaky stuff, you know, freaky <laughs> stuff going on all around him. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I mean, you know, Corey was saying that what did what how did he refer to the hobbit like often comes across as simplistic silly and childish or something like mm -hmm. that yeah yeah and that's them's fighting words <laughs> as far as i'm yeah. concerned because you know because because like you I, I actually do prefer the hobbit to the lord of the rings although it's probably just because i am myself simplistic silly and childish <laughs> childish well, childish for sure anyway but um it actually i mean i was thinking about this and i mean 
it actually seems to me that you could argue that The Hobbit is actually more complex in a way than, than Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, like there, there was kind of an interesting interview on the DVD special features with Peter Jackson where he was saying, you know, what people always say at Lord of the Rings, they always describe it as this great, you know, classic struggle of good versus evil. And, I th- and he's like, I, don't, I actually don't agree with that. I think it's, it's so much more than that, uh, with which I agree with. But you can certainly understand why people tend to think of it as a struggle between good and evil because you know you have like the dark the sauron is like the, he's called he's literally called the dark lord and mm-hmm. you know he lives near a volcano called mount doom and stuff i mean there's <laughs> no no question that he's a bad guy um and most of the characters i mean you can basically tell who's good and who's bad and you know there's certainly shades of gray and 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 complexities but it, it is you know there is to, to a substantial extent it is you know there's good guys and bad guys Mm-hmm. Whereas the the Hobbit is not like that at all. I mean, nobody ever describes the Hobbit as like a classic battle of good versus evil. Because, and that's that's always what I've loved about it is how wonderfully morally ambiguous the ending becomes. You know, like they get to they get to the lonely mountain, and and you would think like, okay, the dwarves they seem you know they they seem basically like the good guys, you know. But so they so they get to the mountain, and you know, it turns out that the dwarves really have no plan for how they're gonna kill the dragon and they kind of just want Bilbo to do everything and you know are happy when he steals the chalice and then get mad at him when this uh, upsets the dragon and then you know the dragon goes on a rampage and you know the the humans have to kill the dragon and then they show up at the mountain and say you know we we've all been killed you know half of us have been killed by this dragon and we think it would be fair for you to give us some of the dragon's treasure and Thorin says now nah, forget it this is our treasure we uh this is our birthright. We're not giving it to you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's it's very complicated. You know, both sides have legitimate, you know, legitimate points. And Bilbo, you know, he initially steals the Arkenstone of Thrain just because he's kind of greedy. Um, but then he gives it to the humans and suddenly, you know, he's switched sides. And now the dwarves kind of seem like bad guys and the humans kind of seem like good guys for the most part. And then, <laughs> you know, and you sort of, I mean... In a simple story, you would expect, you know, they kill the dragon and they get the treasure and they live happily ever after, basically. Um, but the story becomes so much more complicated than that. And then armies all start descending, fighting over the treasure as soon as the dragon's dead. And it's it's this, I don't know, I, th- I think real kind of wonderful, real politique thing. It was sort of making me think how, you know, in Return of the King, in the movie, there's the part where Aragorn is crowned and everyone cheers and... Uh, orchid blossoms or something are falling <laughs> out of the sky and you know and, and the audience is cheering and half of them are like halfway to the door <laughs> and then the movie keeps going mm-hmm. and and everyone's kind of like whoa wait there's more you know everyone who mm-hmm. hasn't read the book is like whoa what there's more i thought that was the mm-hmm. end um and then there's a much more complex conflicted ambiguous end that comes after that and i sort of wonder how many people in the movie theater are going to be like halfway to the door <laughs> you know when the dragon's dead and they're all celebrating you know, are they are there going to be the same sorts of complaints like, oh, there's too many endings here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say, uh, I, I was actually just thinking, um, you know, should we talk about the, uh, you know, the animated versions of like the animated version of The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings? Uh, if I recall correctly, the, the animated version of The Hobbit is pretty good, but the animated version of Lord of the Rings is bad. Is that right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still I, I, have, I have very fond memories of the animated version of The, the Hobbit. I think that I think that record I was talking about may actually just be like sort of dialogue from the movie, you know, the animated movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, come to think of it, but 
I was like actually going to ask you, I, I don't remember which one it is, but is it in The Hobbit or in Lord of the Rings where the orcs sing, where there's a whip, there's a way? Because, I mean, that's like, <laughs> it was just like, it's like kind of so ridiculous. And uh, I, just, I, I always remembered it um, from seeing it as a kid. Like, do you remember that? I think that's in The Hobbit. I mean, I think that's okay. maybe the song that they sing, you know, that the goblins sing um, oh, yeah, goblins, in the right. Misty Mountains after they've, they've captured, uh, you know, the dwarves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm actually quite, I actually quite like uh, a lot of the songs in, in The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really watched the Lord of the Rings animated movie just because my parents, you mm-hmm. know, hated it so much and they, they sort oh. of, you know, warned me off of it. Yeah. Um, I gather what happened is that Ralph Bakshi, <laughs> I, I, I honestly think what happened is that he ran out of money halfway <laughs> through and so uh-huh. released it, not making it at all clear that this was just the first half. Mm-hmm. And so everyone who went to see it just assumed it was the whole story. And so, mm-hmm. it, you know, it gets like halfway through and it just ends and, and people were really, really angry. Oh, and actually, I was going to ask too. Um, you know, so in the in Fellowship of the Ring, I you know I I didn't remember this part, but you know, at, at some point, uh, Bilbo gives Frodo a copy of his book, and it's like you know called uh, you know There or Back Again, which is the alternate title of The Hobbit. So is that like uh, was that in Lord of the Rings in the book? I, I don't remember. And uh, if so, is that like sort of the first example of an author plugging his own work in his in a, in a new volume of his books? Yeah. Well, actually, I was just listening to you know the the most recent Tolkien professor podcast he was kind of talking about some of this stuff and it was really interesting i I had not been aware of all this before but basically yeah within the within the constructed reality of the lord of the rings the hobbit is a book that bilbo writes called there and back again a hobbit's adventure or something like that Mm -hmm. and actually there's this really interesting thing where you know when um tolkien originally wrote the hobbit like like i was saying earlier the the ring the Bilbo finds was just like this cool magic ring that turns you invisible. And it had mm. no, you know, the, the rest of the mythology regarding the ring hadn't, hadn't been worked out. And so when, <laughs> when um, Bilbo and Gollum do this riddle contest, Bilbo wins. And then Gollum is like, wow, I'd love to give you my ring, but uh, you know, I can't seem to find it. And Bilbo's like, ah, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And, and Gollum says, well, can I make it up to you? Can I just show you the exit? And, and Bilbo says, sure. You know, and, <laughs> and they just part on, on good terms, you know? And so then after, Tolkien was writing the the Lord of the Rings you know he was you know, like two-thirds of the way through it or something and he starts thinking about the Hobbit and it's like wow this is not consistent at all this is not how Gollum would behave with if, if the ring is the the one ring and so he actually he actually I think released uh, a couple of different editions of the Hobbit rewriting stuff to make it more consistent with the um, developing mythology but so like the, the version, you know, that, that I'm familiar with, certainly and I, that I think most people are, is, is the revised version where Gollum never really intended to, to honor the bargain. And he goes off to get his ring so that he can sneak up on Bilbo and kill him. And then when he discovers it's gone, he starts hunting Bilbo and Bilbo has to like rush past him. And Gollum is shouting, you know, bad dragons, we hate, <laughs> you know. But so anyway, so in within the constructed reality of of the you know, Middle Earth milieu, it turns out that Bilbo originally lied. Mm-hmm. You know, the explanation for why there are different editions is that Bilbo originally lied when he first wrote the story. Right. Well, and there's your there's your answer for why in The Hobbit the ring isn't as sinister, too, because, you know, obviously Bilbo just left that part out or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, although you would think that uh, he would it would be kind of dumb to even mention this powerful ring anyway <laughs> in the book. It's like, isn't that going to sort of get people coming after him uh, if he publishes some book and talks about this awesome magic ring that he has? <laughs> it's like it's, you can turn invisible with it and it doesn't do anything wrong. 
Oh, I think we should we should mention, you know, that we, we talked about George R. R. Martin's, uh, you know, we asked Corey about George R. R. Martin a little bit, and it's just been announced that George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones has been greenlit by HBO, so it's it's going to series. And this, this news will probably be <laughs> two weeks old or something by the time people are actually listening to this episode. So I don't want you to think that we're like that far behind the times, you know, <laughs> we, we're very conscientious and we record these episodes well ahead of time, at least so far. But uh, one thing it made me think of is that I've heard George R. R. Martin say that you know, he's been working on this Song of Ice and Fire for, you know, I think like 25 or 30 years since he initially got the, the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and he was just like thinking about the first book, you know, for, for five or some five or six years or something before, you know, he actually, uh, got a chance to write it. But so it's, it's got, you know, so he says, I mean, there are decisions that he made, <laughs> you know, all these years ago that he wishes he could change now, mm-hmm. but he can't mm-hmm. because they've already, you know, appeared in print. Yeah. And uh, he kind of he says, you know, wow, I wish I was just independently wealthy and I could just write the whole series and then release it and, you know, make everything consistent rather than trying to having to work within these things that are, you know, that are already sort of set in stone. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I've heard him talk about that, but then I'm like, well, wait, Tolkien just completely mm-hmm. rewrote The Hobbit, you know, to make it fit later yeah. stuff. So could other authors do that as well? Oh, yeah. No, other authors do it all the time. I mean, Stephen King actually... Um... He reworked a lot of the Dark Tower and, you know, they re-released the first book to add in elements that, you know, to sort of make it more consistent with stuff he added later on. And of course, you know, that's sort of a similar situation where, you know, he'd been working on that for 30 years. And so, uh, and, uh, and there was like a huge gap in time between writing books like four and five, and then, and then the five, six and seven. So, you know, um, you know, he's a different writer at that point and he had sort of came up with different ideas. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's not unheard of. And, and, you know, Orson Scott card recently sort of, uh, retcon some of, uh, some of Ender's of the Ender's game history, uh, in, in the recent se- direct sequel to Ender's game. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there's nothing stopping from Martin from doing that. Although I would, I would prefer that authors just work within the framework they've already established, because I think that in general, just kind of, it, it makes it, it'll make it better because it's like, well, you know, you can't, <laughs> You know, if there's things that happen in history, you can't just go and change history. You have to you have to deal with the consequences that have come before. It makes it harder for the writer, but I think in the end, it's more rewarding for the reader. What, how should Tolkien have uh, have dealt with this once he decided to make Bilbo's ring this really really powerful sinister ring? Should he not have rewritten The Hobbit then, or not have? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I haven't. You know, I, I guess I only re- I only read the revised edition you know so it's harder for me to to say but it certainly would raise complications for you know having the lord of the rings and the hobbit you know, work together well if uh you know if he didn't do that so i mean it's hard to say i mean sort of another issue with you know with authors going back and fiddling with stuff is you know you might get like the dreaded lucas effect right yeah Where, yeah you know people get really attached to the, the creation the way it is and then and then the creator comes back and says, actually, I just didn't have the budget to do it right the first time. Here's, you know, how I think it ought to really be. And you're like, wow, this is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of, uh, of, I'm sorry, speaking of the Song of Ice and Fire uh, series on HBO, I mean, I, I really, uh, because I, you know, I've, you know, read the series or, you know, I've read a couple books in the series and I really love it. And uh, I mean, I'm really optimistic that it could be like the greatest, you know, work of uh, visual narrative epic fantasy ever, you know, just like, you know, whether television or film. Um, although, uh, with, with that in mind, I, I kind of feel compelled to mention this other, uh, what I think may be actually the current 
best thing ever is uh, there's this uh, animated series called Avatar The Last Airbender that I've been uh, watching. And actually, uh, by the time this episode airs, we'll, we'll have started um, this rewatch project on Tor.com. Uh, not not Dave and I, but uh, Matt London and Jordan Hamlesley and I. We're going to be sort of analyzing uh, analyzing the show episode by episode. But, uh, I mean, it's really like, I mean, it's an animated show. It was made originally for kids. It aired on Nickelodeon. But, I mean, it's really got some of the most fantastic world building I've ever seen and has one of the most... Uh, uh, interesting magic systems uh, I've seen, you know, in books or you know on film or television, and um, just like you know, thinking of Lord of the Rings as sort of the Bible of, of this type of fiction, it, it just uh, I, I feel compelled to mention this uh, this contemporary example that uh, does it really well. That you know, I think a lot of probably fantasy fans may have missed because it was a television show aimed at kids. Not right, cool. Yeah, so people definitely check that out. We're once again way over time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just one last thing I wanted to note in closing. Um, you know, like like Corey was 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 saying that there's you know sometimes this like bias against fantasy that people have, and people will kind of accuse fantasy of being quote unquote escapist, um, with with kind of the implication that fantasy represents uh, an estrangement from the real world or something like that. And I, I, of course, I obviously disagree with this, but and like he was saying, it seems like the only people who say this are people who don't read any fantasy and and. I'm sad to say don't seem to be all that bright for the mm. most part. But I mean, to me, fantasy has always been not an estrangement from the real world, but a, a, a sort of tool by which people can use their imaginations and the imaginations of other people to make the world a more wondrous, richer, um, just more uh, magical uh, sort of thrilling sort of place to, to, to live in. And, the, and so, you know, one of my examples of this that I use a lot relates to Tolkien. So, you know, my family goes uh, backpacking all the time. And there have just been, been so many times where we'll, you know, we'll be walking through the woods and we'll come into a part of the forest where the, the trees have grown really thickly overhead and it's dark and the the soil is dark and damp and the trees are all gnarled. And, and my mom will sort of come up and say, so what does this remind you of? And I'll say, Mirkwood, of course. And you sort of, you know, the real world sort of acquires this this sort of uh, superimposed superimposed reality where you can you you remember the dwarves all you know huddled together with all these eyes out in the darkness all watching them and it just it just makes uh, makes makes living so much more interesting to me when you have that kind of imaginative framework uh, you know that that coexists with just the the literal uh, things that you see and I really kind of uh, pity people who who don't have that and that was our show thanks everyone for joining us if you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today we'd love to hear from you just go to tour.com and click on podcasts and then geeks guide to the galaxy episode 12 and post a comment there and be sure to join us next week when we'll talk to john langan an acclaimed new writer who just released his first novel a spooky book called house of windows see you then The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or DavidBarrCurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadsville 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.